Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 61 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Cool episode for you today. The featured guest is a man named Jordan Grummet, otherwise known as Doc G. He's a personal finance podcaster, mainly. That's how a lot of people know him through his awesome podcast, Earn and Invest. He's also a doctor. He's a hospice doctor. And we'll get into exactly what that means, being a hospice doctor. But long story short, Jordan has a really interesting set of experiences, and he's got interesting viewpoints when it comes to life and death. And then you add in his personal finance expertise, and he's got some really cool thoughts when it comes to life, death, and money, living a fulfilled life, planning for the end, and how money should act as a tool to get you where you want to go in between. And before we really get into Jordan and Jordan's interview today, I want to talk about something that I wrote a couple summers ago. I wrote it June of 2021, which interestingly, for me at least, was before my career transition. It was certainly something I was thinking about actively, but I hadn't yet switched careers. And I wrote this article in June of 2021. We will throw a link into the show notes. And the article is called, This is Where Life Happens. You're going about your life, maintaining the status quo, you're in what I call the pit of ignorance. Now, don't worry, we'll define what that means. But then one day when you're down in the pit of ignorance, you learn about something called the big idea. And the big idea, it blows your mind. You feel like the world is your oyster. You're filled with this motivation and it makes you want to achieve a new goal. And in that moment of excitement, you're at the peak of enlightenment. But unfortunately, you're only there momentarily. Because you then realize that the goal is harder than you thought. It's going to take a lot of time to get there. There's no substitute for that time and the hard work that is entailed to get you to your goal. And so a long period of relative monotony ensues. You have to slog through what I call the valley of drudgery. And it is a long slog. Days, months, and years can go by. And eventually you do start making progress. And the excitement returns to you you start slowly ascending the slopes of soon, as I call them. And the closer you get to the goal, the more excited you get. And eventually, yes, you hit your goal. You have mounted Goal Summit. Now, I encourage you guys to look at this article because in my nerdy Excel engineering way, I, I plotted this landscape out using Microsoft Excel, using a spreadsheet, using a graph from a spreadsheet. And you can kind of see what I mean how your excitement varies over time when you think of some really cool goal and then eventually reach that goal. You do get this short burst of excitement early on, but then any goal worth pursuing takes a long time and takes a lot of hard work. And there often isn't that much excitement during that stretch of time until eventually you kind of get closer to the goal and a lot of your excitement returns to you. Now, most people have lived this experience at some point in their life. But the question that I ask myself, and I think the question that you should ask yourself is, how do we avoid that long, slow, boring valley of drudgery, as I call it? How do we avoid that, that long period of monotonous day after day doing the same thing? 
How do we fill that time period with some sort of joy? Now, I think that little landscape, it applies to many goals. The the big idea, the big exciting idea that you have, it could be anything. It might be a new weight loss plan. You know, fitness, losing weight, that's exciting. But the execution, as we all probably know, can be painful. There's a long slog through that valley of drudgery, one pound at a time, before the results really start getting exciting for you. Another example, entrepreneurs, they get big ideas for new businesses, but then actual entrepreneurship involves years of grinding away. Little wins along the way, they certainly help, but it takes a lot of time and effort to reach the eventual entrepreneurship goal. And there's a lot of failure, just outright failure along the way too. And yes, this plot certainly applies, this idea applies to personal finance to retirement planning, to saving money. The FIRE community, financial independence and retiring early, that is a perfect example. They should know all about this landscape. Learning about FIRE, the idea that you might be able to retire at age 40 or 45 or 50, it's a really cool, mind-blowing idea that excites you when you learn about it. And for a few weeks, maybe even a few months, it might consume you and you start thinking about all the ways that you can reach FIRE sooner. It's really cool. But that excitement wears off after a few months. And what remains in absence of that excitement is a simple truth. It's hard to rush fire. You can only save so much money and you you can't really choose how the investment markets will make your money grow. It's going to take years and years and years before you reach your fire goal. The important details and the important knowledge, I mean, you can learn all of that in a few weeks. And then maybe it takes another week for you to create your master plan and and you're really there at the peak of enlightenment early on, but then it might take 15 years of repetitive plotting to execute that plan. It really is a valley of drudgery. So maybe by now you've caught my drift. Peaks of enlightenment are short-lived, goal summits at the end, they're rewarding but fleeting. And instead, most of life is spent down in the valley of drudgery. That right there... That is where life happens. And we might think that's kind of depressing. Our life happens down at the bottom of the valley of drudgery. But I think we need to wait. We shouldn't cry a river just yet because I have good news, or at least good news that's helped me in my life, because we each have a choice. The drudgery can be boring if we allow it to be. We can get stuck in the doldrums there. Or, to continue our watery puns, we can flood the valley of drudgery with the simple pleasures of life. And set sail, we can take our life's boat across on a higher plane. The daily mundaneness, it fades into obscurity, it disappears. And a sea of simple pleasures keeps life fun and and fresh. Now, full disclosure, flooding your valley, it it certainly can be a struggle. I wish, personally, that I was this ever-flowing fountain of, of flowers and butterflies and happiness. We actually talked about this recently on episode 59 of the podcast about the power of positivity, but but also the limits of positivity and the fact that we can't all be positive people all the time. That's just not realistic. It's also probably not even healthy. We all have bad days. I certainly suffer days of sluggish boredom, but most of the time I'm able to make drudgery fun, as oxymoronic as that sounds. You know, everyone I know has to traverse this landscape in some way, shape, or form. You probably do too. And that means that day to day, that tedium is either going to grind you down or you're going to have to find a way to let it fill your sails. You know, to quote Andy Dufresne from The Shawshank Redemption. 
I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, you get busy dying. One of the earliest posts I wrote here on The Best Interest features my really good friend, Tyler Sokash. Such a good friend, in fact, that Tyler was the officiant in my wedding last September. Tyler hiked 7,000 miles in 13 months, once upon a time. He covered the Pacific Crest Trail that goes from Canada down to Mexico. Then he did Te Araroa, that's the North to South Continental Trail across New Zealand. And then he flew back to Atlanta and did the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine. He did that all in 13 months, again, 7,000 miles. Now, I'm sure that planning the trip was super exciting for Tyler. I mean, who doesn't like planning a big trip? He, I'm sure, was flying high on the peak of enlightenment. And we know that finishing a good hike, you know, that, that the final steps along that long trail, the, the last few steps up to the summit of a mountain, that's really exhilarating. It's such a good feeling. It's truly summiting your goal. But then I think about the other 7,000 miles. Did Tyler spend most of that 7,000 miles deep down in the, the depressing valley of drudgery? No way. There's no way. He was floating on a sea of simple pleasures. He was exploring new worlds and sleeping under the stars. And yes, he was eating bowls of oatmeal to fend off hiker hunger, meeting new friends along the way and, and so-called trail angels. That journey, the journey itself, the 7,000 miles, that's where life happens. And if each step is a chore, you're probably never going to make it. The final mile is really nice, but that's just this fleeting bookend to what otherwise was a, a long, challenging journey. Back in that article I wrote, I said, summiting Mount Katahdin at trail's end will feel great for about an hour, but the glory will wear off. You'll be left with either the memories of wildflower prairies and wild horses or with the regret of sword legs and grimy discomfort. So, back to today. Do you want to get rich? Do you want to retire early? Maybe you just want to get out of debt? That's awesome. You should get after those goals. Take them one step at a time, and make sure you enjoy the sights along the way. Now, it's funny. Oh, again, I have to go back to episode 59 of the podcast, because I'm about to talk about 5AM Joel. I've learned a ton from 5AM Joel, who was on episode 59. And then we also spoke once upon a time on episode seven of the Best Interest Podcast. If you don't know him, Joel's an Aussie. He's living in Los Angeles. He, he's run his own personal blogs in the past. And now he, he does a lot of writing for the very well done How To Money newsletter and the How To Money podcast. And I bring up Joel here because of his boundless optimism. Joel, for many, many years, sent an email to his readers every single day at 5 a.m. It was short and sweet. It usually only took 30 seconds to read, and each day he had some sort of inspiring message or just a little drop from Joel's personal sea of simple pleasures. A story about Cooper, his dog, a picture of a blooming garden, some quick anecdote, just about bringing some simple joy into the world. And the best part, at least I found, was that his emails filled my sea as well, and at, at zero cost to Joel. Optimism is freely shared, and a rising tide raises all ships. Joel was clearly enjoying his journey high above the Valley of Drudgery. He shared that with us, and he helped us all out as well. You know, Joel, it turns out, is a everyday, normal Joe personal finance superstar with savings somewhere between, you know, barista fire and actual early retirement, but he barely ever mentions that. He's too busy surfing. He's too busy walking Cooper. It's the simple pleasures in life. 
And I know I've been bleeding dry, these water references, maybe I'm just thirsty, but here's one more. And this one comes from one of my favorite speeches that you've heard before here on the Best Interest Podcast, David Foster Wallace's This Is Water. He says, there are these two fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish, they swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? The message from the speech is exactly what we're discussing today. It's all too easy to swim through life while forgetting that we're surrounded by life itself. This is life. The journey itself is everything. In his speech, David Foster Wallace explained to the graduating seniors at Kenyon College that life will eventually drag them down into the valley of drudgery unless they realized they had a choice. That choice is how to think, how to view the world, how to see their fellow men and women. Will they see the simple pleasures hiding in plain sight? Our quote-unquote default setting, as Wallace says, is to view ourselves as the protagonist of the world. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor, and so on. But the world doesn't happen to us. We're not the main characters in some TV show, even though it's hard to fight that feeling. It happens with us. It happens around us. We're each just a minor character in someone else's play. So try as you might, you should turn off that default setting and tune into the simple experiences occurring around you. You might be upset at me, mounted here, high on my seahorse. So I'm going to steal another one of David Foster Wallace's lines right here. Again, please don't think I'm giving you moral advice or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it because it's hard. It takes will and effort. And if you were like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just flat out won't want to. Seas rise, seas fall, and the sea of simple pleasures is no different. I've had plenty of bad days, especially at the time when I was writing this over the last year of COVID. COVID was really hard on a lot of people, including me. But when my cup runs dry, I've found reprieve in the simple things. The end of the journey will eventually come. I'm working hard to summit my goals. But if I don't quite make it work, I'll be okay. Why? Because this is water. This is where life happens. And life itself is our buoy. Now, speaking of finding purpose in life, one of my favorite things about Dr. Jordan Grummet is his three-word saying, purpose, identity, and connections. It's a quick, easy way to remember that which is important in life, or at least that which we should try to prioritize in life. And we do dive into that in this conversation that you're about to hear. But first, a little bit about Dr. Jordan Grummet or Doc G. He's a medical doctor who loves his family, loves side hustles, contemplating retiring early, and the philosophy of financial independence. He hosts the popular Earn and Invest podcast, which has won a Plutus Award as the best in-class podcast that's kind of like the Oscars for personal finance content. I'm pretty honored that the best interest, the blog, my writing, was nominated for a Plutus Award on the writing side last year. And back to Jordan, Ulysses Press recently published a book that Jordan wrote called Taking Stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. A book that incorporates Doc G's experience as a hospice doctor working with dying patients and his expertise in personal finance. 
Doc G shares a unique and powerful perspective on personal finance and investing and how you should think about it in your life. All right, Jordan, Doc G, thanks for being here. I'd love to start the conversation with the end of your book's subtitle, Living a Regret-Free Life. What exactly does that mean to you? It's a great question. And and part of the reason is it's going to mean something different to everybody. But what I found both in my financial career and as a hospice doctor is that when people get to the end of life, it's incredibly clarifying and they look back at their life and they say, well, what did I do? What didn't I do? What are some of those things I didn't accomplish or What dreams didn't I live up to? And so living a regret-free life is actually trying to address those things before you get terminally ill, start thinking about them today, as opposed to putting them off to some other time, which may or may not come. We don't know how many days we have left on this earth. Hopefully we have many, many, but you could be like my father who died suddenly when he was 40. And so the idea is to start thinking about what are those things that are deeply important to you now and maybe pursuing them sooner than later. That's interesting. That, that Okay, the idea of how many days do I have left? Something I was thinking about over the last couple of days, Jordan, preparing for this conversation. One of my struggles that you made me realize as I listened to some of your other podcasts, I struggle with what I call zero days or, or maybe near zero days. In short, some days I feel inspired and motivated and efficient and I just, I squeeze the marrow out of life. But then once in a while, and, and it might even be like once a month, usually on a weekend, I'll have some sort of slow, lazy day that just feels like a complete waste. And I'd bet a hospice patient, someone that you might be seeing on a regular basis, would see me living that day and they'd grab me and shake me for the opportunity that I'm wasting. And so I'm just curious, from your experience as a hospice doctor, do you have any advice or lessons when it comes to seizing this this one and only life we have? I think sometimes we get too caught up on the should ofs, like I should have spent that day doing something. I think when it comes down to it, when I talk to these dying patients, it's not that they did or didn't do on what day. It was more these large swaths of things that they didn't do. It's actually my same problem with bucket list items. People are like, boy, I really dream of going to Australia and living in Melbourne for a, for a week. And, and that sounds great. It's like a bucket list item. Those aren't those things that people regret, like not taking the time to do that one thing or that one trip. It's more these big swaths of, I wish I spent more of my time traveling or seeing the world or doing these things that felt very purposeful. And the truth of the matter is part of our purpose is rest too. So I don't think you're missing out because of one day or even one week. Now, if you spend years and years putting things off and doing nothing, then it's a problem. But we're really talking about these larger ideas, these larger activities. It's not what we do today or tomorrow, but it's what really fills our time over long periods that I think is more important. So then what are some thoughts or exercises that you found successful that you might recommend someone who is younger and healthier, some exercise that they start doing right now to identify those big, large swaths in life that are going to bring them long-term joy, prevent some sort of regret on their deathbed. Are there any tactics you recommend? 
So what we're really talking about is is finding a sense of purpose and identity. And that is a long-term thing, right? You don't just say, tomorrow I have the day off. I'm going to figure out who I am and what I want in life. But there are most definitely some techniques that can be used. I talk about this in my book, Taking Stock. One of them is the life review. So we do a life review with dying patients. And what that is is a structured series of questions in which people can look back at their life and digest it, right? What was important to me? What wasn't important to me? Who were the important people? What were my greatest moments? What were my worst moments? What did I accomplish? What do I wish I had accomplished? So doing a life review is actually a fantastic way for a young person to start thinking about what is purposeful for them today. There are all sorts of life reviews. You can find them if you go searching online. The one sentencer that I say people can always start with is, if I found out I was going to die in the next few months, what would I really regret never having the energy, courage, or time to do? And so really meditating on that, I think, is a very, very good start. There are a bunch of different other techniques. Everything from starting to look back at your childhood, right? Often we have these huge dreams in childhood, and we eventually start ignoring them as society tells us what we're supposed to do, who we're supposed to be, and specifically what we can't do. Like, that's not something grownups do. How many kids hear that? Right. And so they let go of these childhood dreams. So some of it is actually going back to your childhood and say, well, what lit me up? What were my happiest moments? I love to ask people, when was the last time you woke up in the middle of the night excited by an idea and you couldn't go back to sleep? What happens for most people when that occurs? Usually they wake up the next day, they're groggy, they're tired, they have work, they have the kids, they have everything on their schedule and they forget about it and they move on. And that thing that had them so enthralled in the middle of the night is gone my goal is to get people to start thinking about these things again. And I've even evolved as I've been talking about these things, even after I wrote the book, you start realizing that purpose isn't something you per se find, it's something you create. So what you're really looking for, what are these threads of things that seem important to me? And then how can I start creating a, a life or a sense of purpose around them? If none of that works, there's the old spaghetti method, which is you take the spaghetti, throw it against the wall and see what sticks which means you put yourself up for all sorts of new activities, experiences that you've never done before and see what gratifies you. So let's dive into that. I've heard a few times now, Jordan, you have some wonderful, I call them three word phrases. <laughs> one of yours is purpose, identity, and connections. Another one that you just mentioned was energy, courage, and time. So let's dive in really quickly to purpose, identity, and connections. I think if I slow down and think about them one, not one by one, I know exactly what you're talking about. But right there, you, you just mentioned purpose and you mentioned, I think, slowing down to really try to identify your specific purpose over the long run. And you even started to, to say that recently or maybe over the past few years, you've done a better job with that. Maybe do you mind sharing your story of kind of honing in further and further on your purpose? And then if we have time, we can expand to identity and connections from there. Yeah, and, and I like to start the conversation by saying that purpose doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a small thing. And your purpose can change from time to time. And you can have many purposes. So when I was little, seven years old, my father died and he was a doctor. And I decided mm. that cosmically I could make the world right by becoming a doctor like him. It could somehow make up for the fact that he died way too young and it made no sense. Mm. And so for a very beginning of my life, becoming a doctor was very purposeful for me. And it actually filled me up. It brought me lots of joy. It pushed me to study really hard. And really, for the first 20, 30 years of life, that was my singular purpose. Because it was my purpose, it became also my identity, the sense of who are you? Well, I'm the guy who's going to become a doctor. And eventually, I was the guy who did become a doctor. 
as time went on, though, and I started practicing medicine, I realized that that purpose wasn't serving me. I was getting burned out. I wasn't enjoying it as much as I wanted to. And I started realizing that this sense of purpose and identity wasn't fitting because I wasn't really identifying as a doctor. Like I would feel uncomfortable in the hospital cafeteria hanging out with the other doctors. When I went to parties, I wouldn't want to tell other people what I did for a living. It was only later on that I realized that that outward shell of a purpose and an identity that I had around me didn't fit how I felt internally. Internally, I was a lot more creative and I was a lot more interested in communication. I loved writing. I loved public speaking. All these things that I never gave myself permission to do because I had somehow told myself that isn't something you do for a living. So I had been writing on the side. I had been writing a medical blog Mm -hmm. for years and I would do it during like weekends and nights and lunch hours. I mean, I was so busy with my life that I often didn't edit it. So I would get all these comments about how bad my grammar was. (laughs) But the point was, it was so important to me to fit that in, but I never thought maybe that those things identify me are more purposeful for me than being a doctor. Only when I realized the boon of financial independence and that I had enough money to do whatever I wanted, did I give myself permission to put that identity of being a doctor down because it wasn't serving me and start thinking, well, if I'm going to start identifying myself different, a big part of that is what is purposeful to me. And I had to really look at myself and I started going back to childhood and these things that I was doing that I was squirreling into these little moments. I had been writing poetry since I was in high school or middle school. I had been spending my time writing a medical blog whenever I could fit in a little bit of extra time. These were the things that were speaking to me. And so I started exploring those and actually found what I would call a much more durable sense of purpose in creating these conversations, delving deeply into why we do what we do, forming a podcast, writing a blog, doing a bunch of public speaking, eventually writing, taking stock. That was a purpose that fit me better. And because it fit me better, it felt better. And I often talk about purpose, identity, and connections, but they're really very connected, right? Because we end up identifying who we are based on what is important to us, what our sense of purpose is. And purpose and identity, eventually, if you find what fits you, leads to connections, So I had talked about this fact that I didn't feel comfortable around other doctors. I hadn't really built a community or built some of those deeper connections. But when I discovered that what I really wanted to be was a communicator and I loved podcasting and blogging and writing, I found myself going to conferences and meeting other people who felt that same sense of purpose and identity. And I automatically connected with them. I mean, in in a way that I had never connected with doctors, I had spent a decade or two around doctors and, and had almost no doctor friends. I went to some of these financial conferences, met other bloggers and podcasters, and I have more deep friendships and connections over the last few years than I've ever had in my life. That's amazing. And I I can relate to some extent, Jordan. Now, I think many listeners probably know this. You, You might not know this. I spent six years of my late teens, early 20s preparing to be an engineer, then spent seven years, the first seven years of my career focused on engineering. But then in my brain, I always had a love for education. My parents were both teachers. I spent a lot of time in college being a a teaching assistant, teaching some courses. Also had this passion for personal finance and investing. And so I pivoted. A year and a half ago, I pivoted. Well, really, four and a half years ago is when I started this blog, started the podcast. Like you, I just love communicating. I really love educating. And then a year and a half ago, professionally, I pivoted. So now I'm working at a a fiduciary wealth management firm 
helping clients, educating clients on how better to invest, how to do their long-term financial plans. And I feel much more fulfilled. I feel like my, my daily purpose is much more aligned with something deep inside that, that I've been seeking out. So I can totally relate to how good that feels. And, you know, let's add in another layer to this. You and I like talking about money, but notice how money didn't really come into this conversation. Maybe you could have made a lot more as an engineer, but you're finding yourself more fulfilled. And what I learned in medicine is even though I could make a lot of money doing it, I was less fulfilled and that led to burnout. And burnout actually led to a very short career. When I listen to stories like yours, you realize that you may get to that financial place you want to get a touch slower, mm -hmm. but your career trajectory will be much longer because you're actually finding a sense of purpose and identity now in the work you're doing, and you're creating a life for yourself you don't want to escape from. So this idea of, I, I have to retire really quick so I can live the life I want to live, that disappears. And you're like, wait, I'm living the life I want to live regardless if I'm retired or not. But in the meantime, you can build this beautiful financial framework around that to support freedom and retirement and all those things when you're ready for them. And I think that's the ultimate goal. I completely agree with you, Jordan. The way that I got involved in the whole personal finance investing fire movement, part of it had to do with I'm working as an engineer, not really loving my day to day. I want to look for a different way to do things. FIRE, financial independence, retiring early, was one of those paths that clicked with me. It made sense to my mathematical mind. I'm going for it. It didn't necessarily make me any happier to see my FIRE day getting closer and closer, nothing like that. And eventually I realized I just don't enjoy my day-to-day -day work. It's not that I really want to retire. I just want to do something else other than sit in a cube and working as an engineer. I haven't really thought about FIRE over the past year. Financial independence, I still think will happen. I still have good personal finance habits that will bring FI into my life sooner than maybe the average person. But the RE portion, not really thinking about it at all. And I think that's, again, going back to you know purpose yeah. and identity, I think that's a really big reason why. Our money is support, supposed to support the life we want to live. What we're starting to realize now is that the life we want to live can support our financial needs. So it can go the other way around. And I think those of us who started in that really traditional FIRE movement didn't see that. We just saw work really hard, make as much money as you can, and buy your freedom. I don't think we realized, a lot of us, that we could actually start creating our freedom and our purpose now and have our money serve us on that pathway as opposed to waiting until we got to some net worth number. And I think it's fine if you want to do things that way, but all of us know someone who hit the retirement date and a week later got diagnosed with a cancer or something else. You just don't know how long you have. I think it's sad, this idea of if you keep on putting off happiness or keep on putting off the things that are purposeful for you, at some point you may miss the boat. And that's in fact what we often talk to hospice patients, dying patients about. And my goal is to keep us all from getting to that, right? That's right. what we really mean by no regrets is living the life you wanna to live today so that whenever death comes, you can feel like you did those important things. I had a former coworker of mine, Jordan, who was one of, if not the most respected engineers in our facility of you know three or 400 engineers. This guy, you know, top 1%, 30-year career scientist, extremely smart, very kind individual, 
retired a little bit early. I think he retired around 55 or 57. And within six months of retiring, after a hike, had a catastrophic heart attack and died, you know, died before he hit the ground, that kind of thing. And it really just brought into focus that tomorrow isn't promised. And I, I do think he got a lot of joy out of his work. But still, the fact that retirement was probably a goal of his and he reached that goal. And six months later, it was done. It was a really impactful moment for me. Yeah, I, I have a funny, not funny, but I have actually the best role model for this. My father, who died at 40, yeah, he loved his job. He loved mm -hmm. photography. He loved travel. That guy pursued his passions all the way up to the moment he died. In fact, when he got done with his fellowship, he got offered a very prestigious, high-paying job. He was a cancer doctor, an oncologist, mm -hmm. in a private practice. And he turned it down to work at the Veterans Affairs Hospital connected with the university, which paid almost half. But he had a lot more time to himself. He got to teach other students and residents. It was his dream job. And he gave up the money to do that. Looking back, knowing that he died at 40, he lived his life to the fullest. He enjoyed every moment. He felt purpose in his activities. And as I got older and realized that I was not nearly as passionate about being a doctor as he was, it really kind of clicked that maybe I should be spending my time doing some other things. This is a, a personal and unplanned question, Jordan. And, and if you don't want to answer it or, or by all means, we can edit it out. I'm just curious. Are you, are you older now than your, your father was when he passed? I assume you are. Yeah. So I turned 52 days okay. ago and my father died when he was 40. Well, happy recent birthday to you. <laughs> I'm just curious. I mean, either around the time you were approaching your father's age when he passed or when you passed that date or that birthday, or now that you're older than he was, did that have some sort of concentrated effect on these topics that we're talking about today and, and your mentality towards them? Interestingly enough, it didn't. And the reason why is I've spent a lot of time thinking about my own mortality. One of the stories I tell about my father is he actually had a premonition he was going to die early. And he told mm. my mom this when he got married to her. He said, you know what? I'm going to die young. It just is what it is. I think it's part of the reason that he actually lived life to its fullest while it was happening. Because I think he kind of knew that he didn't have a long trajectory. I felt exactly the opposite. I always thought that I was going to live a longer life. And so I, believe it or not, wasn't as worried about grinding it out young in age because I figured I had a pretty long trajectory. So I looked at things a little different. So yes, it's strange knowing my internal feelings and saying, I'm 50 years old. My dad died at 40 because I only have the picture of him of a seven-year-old. Like my picture of my father mm -hmm. is this person who is much older than me and they were very adult and I was very little. And so as a 50 year old now to look back and come to terms with the fact that I'm older than he was and I've accomplished some of the things he did. And, and so that that's what's kind of the disconnect for me. But I kind of lived with a much different feeling about mortality. And so it didn't affect me, I think, as profoundly as it might have affected someone else. Got it. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. I want to pivot back a little bit to some of your experiences as a hospice doctor. And now my, my kind of segue into this question. So at work for me or through my blog or through the podcast, even at like, you know, the family barbecues, the friends barbecues. Now people know kind of what I do, where my passions are. I hear people talking or people come up to me and say things like, I want to earn $200,000. That's my goal. 
or I want to retire with $3 million. That's my goal. You know, money is the goal. They're measuring in terms of dollars. But I'm curious, could you share some of your experiences as a hospice doctor? And, and maybe first, just in 20 seconds, explain what a hospice doctor does in case some of our listeners aren't, aren't familiar. But then how many of your patients share their joy or regret of life in terms of dollars by hitting monetary goals? Right. So a hospice doctor is a doctor who takes care of patients in the last six months of their life. The care is not oriented to cure or fixing the problem. It's really oriented to making people comfortable and helping them prepare for this idea that they're dying. And so I deal with a lot of people at the end of life and almost no one says, I wish I had hit a higher net worth. Almost no one says, I wish I worked more nights and weekends. When people do talk about money, it's usually a regret that they didn't have enough just to cover some of the basic things they needed or a wish that they could have left more to their children, which is more about, I wish I could leave more of a legacy to my children and not necessarily about money itself. And so usually money is not something people specifically talk about. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You know, I've said in my book, and I've written about this extensively on my blog, you know, money is really a mirage. We give it all sorts of characteristics as if it's this big, important thing. And that thing unto itself has meaning or value. But we all really kind of know Money is a construct. It's something that helps us do other things. And it's those other things which are important, not the money itself. Money is a tool and people forget it's just one of many tools. It's a very effective tool. If you have lots of money, it can provide space and time for you to explore those other things that are purposeful to you. But it's just one of many tools. And so it's really hard for a person at their deathbed to look at money and that be the regret because money signifies other things. And so the real question is, what does money signify in your life and how can we start working to those, towards those other things, whether you have the money today or not? Because again, a lot of times we have other tools at our disposal that can help us get there. You might not have had enough money to fire the day that you realize that you'd rather be doing what you're doing today as opposed to being an engineer, mm -hmm. but you had your knowledge, your skills, your know-how, and your passion. And those were some other tools that you could use to start living a more purposeful life that day as opposed to waiting till you had enough money to bail you out to do it. And so people make the mistake. They think, oh boy, we need lots of money and money's going to solve all our problems. It solves some problems, but not all. And a lot of people find themselves quite depressed and disconcerted when they actually get to their goal financial number and realize that all their life problems still exist. They just don't have any financial problems anymore, but they still maybe don't know who they are or what's important to them, or they're still chasing after this concept of happiness and they haven't quite figured out what that is. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I think the day I decided to switch jobs and then the day I eventually did switch jobs, my financial metrics took a hit. My salary decreased. My eventual, you know, retire early date, if I wanted to do that, got pushed out to the future. Just across the board, the financial numbers took a hit. But from a life enjoyment point of view, or just from an efficacy of my time point of view, what used to be this nine-hour block a day of essentially negative space time that I either felt was completely committed to my corporate employer, time that I didn't feel like I owned, time that I really didn't enjoy, got replaced with, you know, maybe 10 hours a day at the new job, but where I'm enjoying what I'm doing, I'm getting to have conversations like this one. 
and many other conversations with people that are really helping them in their life and therefore giving me meaning in, in my life, more meaning. So finances took a hit. You know, you could objectively say negative, yet somehow overall a huge positive impact on my life. And that's because I, I need to measure change in something other than just the financial aspect. And this is a perfect example of how I think we should be thinking about money. So what you did is you used the art of subtraction. You took what you loathe in your life and you subtracted it out. But then you used the art of addition, which is then taking things that were joyful and purposeful and started adding them into that open space that was now available. What was the role of money? Well, money is a tool. So if you were moderately successful as an engineer and you had enough money to take that financial hit, it definitely allowed you to move to that next step. But the money itself didn't solve any real problems. It just gave you a touch of margin so that you could subtract out what was bad and add in what was good. But you needed a lot more than money. You needed other tools. You needed something you were passionate about. You might have needed some connections in the community to get a new job or just to learn how to do the things you now wanted to do. You might have needed energy, right? And passion and all these other types of tools that you had at your disposal. Money was just one of them. But the money really, again, wasn't the important thing. And this is the mistake we make when we think that net worth is what our true goal is. Money was a tool along the way. Living the life full of purpose, that's the real goal. Totally agree. And, and the connections part, we haven't really touched on the connections too much yet. That was a really big part of my transition. And it was something I think I undervalued as an engineer. But now I see more and more every day the value of connections. And that can be family and friendly connections on the personal side. It could be, you know, more of like a business connection and, or, or, you know, I'm thinking of what you and I are doing here, Jordan, right? Podcasting, blogging, the people that we've met here in this personal finance content community and the amazing opportunities that have come out of those connections. It is something that depending on who I'm talking to, when someone's kind of explaining some of their struggles in life, that's now one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is is this person struggling at all on the connections side? So do you have any thoughts, advice, regrets of the dying that you can share with us when it comes to connections in life? Let me state something that I've probably never stated in this way before, but nonetheless is exceedingly true. Connections is the most part of this journey, and it's also the one you should spend almost no time thinking about. Hmm. And this is why. Purpose and identity, if you pursue them avidly and find what is your purpose and get in touch with your own identity, the connections will naturally flow without you thinking much about them. The goal of all of this is not purpose. The goal of all of this is not identity. The goal of all of this is community and connections. I actually believe that that's what makes us feel good in life and probably leads to our greatest legacy after we're gone or the people we've touched who continue. That's how we live on after we die. That's our true legacy. But I think you should spend not a moment worrying about that. I think if you develop your sense of purpose and identity, the connections naturally will follow. They certainly did with me. When I started being a person more in touch with my own sense of identity and started doing things that I was purposeful about, I couldn't help but forming a community. When I started podcasting, I had all these people on my podcast. And they became my friends. And they also helped and pushed me and said, one of my friends who I had on the podcast a few times said, hey, you really need to write a book. And that was actually a big portion of purpose for me, but I was afraid to do it before. I had all these 
worries about failing and I had no idea how to really get it done and how to get it professionally published. But because I had built a community, this community member not only gave me the courage to do something I really wanted to do, but then also had the know-how because he had published a book before. And so it's cyclical. It all builds on itself. So if you work on purpose and identity, the rest I truly believe will take care of itself. That's the nugget of gold that that not not that the rest of this conversation hasn't been terrific because it really of it's crap. It really no it really has been it's been an awesome conversation but that's something that I I don't think I've ever really thought about that or heard it put in that way Jordan phrased in that way but I can see it making sense like pursue your unique identity find your u- unique identity pursue your specific passions and you'll find the right community to fall into or a community will form around you, or you'll meet new people who have those same passions and purpose as you do. And, and that will end up being your community. Essentially, you don't have to try for it is what you're saying. It'll, it's a function. It naturally flows from pursuing your purpose and identity. I love it. And it will lead, and this is the other part of it, it will lead to a greater legacy. And so let me tell another story I've been telling a lot lately about when I was in elementary and middle school, I was a pretty dorky kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't feel like I got along. I always felt different. My dad had died. All these things. I had a learning disability when I was little. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I fit in at all. But I loved baseball and I loved collecting baseball cards. Down the street from me, about a mile, right by my middle school, was an antiques dealer. And that antiques dealer one day bought a bunch of antiques. And one of the things that was part of this lot of antiques was a bunch of baseball cards. He knew nothing about baseball cards. He was selling off the antiques in his store. A snarky high school kid came in and said, hey, how much you want for those baseball cards? He was like, 10 bucks. Guy said, sure, 10 bucks. Gave him 10 bucks. Spread the cards out on the counter and said, this one, this one, and this one are worth $100 total. And the rest of them are worth about another 50 This antiques dealer wasn't pissed off. He was actually enthralled. He started buying and selling baseball cards. He loved it. It actually made his time in the antique store much more enjoyable. He had been finishing off furniture, stuff he liked, but the antiques really spoke to him. He was living a life of purpose. He actually started making more money. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is this guy was living his purpose. He had figured out his identity. He knew what he liked. But he also created a space where the dorky kids could come, kids who didn't have community, kids who needed mentorship, and people like me would show up, and he became kind of our mentor. We would open up packs of baseball cards. I spent countless afternoons in that store. Looking back, that was the beginning of building confidence. That was the beginning of where I learned how to socialize This guy had a profound impact on me, and I don't think he was meaning to do that. I think he was enthralled just as much as we were in the baseball cards. He had started living a life of purpose. He had gotten in touch with his identity, but by doing that, he changed a generation of young kids who lived in the area. He actually got testicular cancer, Hmm. and the store had to close, and I assume it was you know, spread, and who knows? I don't know if he lived or died. I haven't I, I don't know, but let's say, God forbid, that he had become one of like one of my hospice patients. Yeah. After he was long gone, there was this generation of kids who felt more confident, who had learned how to socialize, who had the positive effects of a mentor, and they probably eventually became professionals and had kids, and maybe they introduced baseball cards to their kids. 
And so if we think about legacy, purpose and identity lead to connections and community. Connections and community lead to changing the people around you. And those changes last long after you're gone, maybe for generations as generations and generations of fathers and mothers teach their kids about baseball cards and that creates community for them and changes the world. And so ultimately, I think this is how we create our biggest legacy. And it has nothing, and I'll say it one more time, it has nothing to do with money. A rising tide lifts all ships. I mean, that gentleman was a rising tide in in mm. your life, Jordan, and 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 the the community of you know young men around you. And you're acting as a rising tide in many ways for for your listeners, for your readers. So interesting, actually. Now, with this antique store owner, his community was very much in person and known to him, and and known to you. It was right there in front of you. It was tangible. Your community, and maybe to some extent, my community. I don't know all my readers and listeners. Mm. And it's very interesting that, especially you, I think with the Earn and Invest podcast, with your book, Taking Stock, you're likely having an impact in some ways that you're not even fully aware of it on a day-to-day basis. It's funny, the difference between local and global impact. My mm-hmm. theory is actually, if you have local impact, it eventually spreads. So you're talking about a rising wave. I love the the ocean metaphor, but for me, it's more like a pebble dropped in the middle of the ocean creates a displacement, a ripple that can yeah. carry on for huge distances. And so that's how I think about how we impact people locally. Now, in the world we live in today, that's much more virtual. We have the internet. I can make a podcast in my home, isolated, with just talking to a few people, but that can go out to thousands and thousands more. I think we can have that same ripple effect that we used to only think could happen locally, but now it has a little bit more of a global impact. But I don't think the theory is any different. Yes, I locally create community with people I know, for instance, when I was collecting baseball cards. As a podcaster, I create communities of other podcasters and people I have on my show and people I meet through it. But you're also correct in the sense that there is a more hidden or invisible community to me of people listening and feeling a part of the podcast that I don't necessarily interact with every day. But I don't know if that necessarily lessens the impact. I think if I didn't have any local community, if I didn't interact with people and meet people through the podcast and go to conferences and get to be in the same room with them, something would be definitely less. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't take away from the impact of those hidden communities that we're forming that maybe we're not as aware of. I think as a content creator, we're in a different bucket in a sense than lots of people because most people aren't content creators. So they Mm -hmm. do all these things, but usually their impact is much more local. I think those of us who create content sometimes have a a little bit farther of a reach, but I don't think it changes anything per se. No, I I don't think so either. I, I agree with you. And if anything, I think it's an important thing for you and I to remind ourselves that there probably are a lot of relatively silent, but still impacted listeners and readers out there who maybe we only hear from them. Maybe we only hear from one in a hundred or one in 10 or one in 50, but then there's another 49 in 50 that are getting a a great impact and we're helping them out in some little or big way. We might not never know. And, And that's interesting in its own way. Yeah. What I always tell people is like, when you try to sell something on your podcast or you offer Mm -hmm. a course or you offer something, even if you have a pretty engaged audience, you suspect that three to 5% of people might actually take action and do something about it, right? right? So 
If you're getting an email here or there, imagine that you could multiply that by 20 is the true impact, right? So every time I get an email and someone says, hey, your book really spoke to me or I love this episode you just did, I kind of in my mind multiply that by 20 because a very small number of people, and this is this is insider talk for content creators as opposed <laughs> to everyone else, but a very small percentage of people actually take action based on what you say and let you know about it. Maybe they take action based on what you say, but very few people will actually go and write you an email. So if you are an avid listener of a content creator or reader of a content creator, this is the message to you. Your messages back to us mean something. And it's nice to hear that kind of we're not just sending this stuff out in the ether because sometimes it feels like it. Exactly right. This is this is our plea for you guys to send Jordan a message, send me a message, let us know that you just heard us speaking, and we would greatly appreciate it. <laughs> well, Jordan, I mean, terrific conversation. I've enjoyed it. I know our listeners will enjoy it. I've mentioned a couple times your podcast and your book, and I want to make sure that listeners know where they can listen and where they can check that out. So where, where can people find you? So the easiest way to find me is to go to jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. The reason why is you can find links to everywhere I create content there. So number one, the book, Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life. The links are there to Amazon or wherever you want to buy it. There's also links to my medical blog called In My Humble Opinion, which I wrote from about 2004 to 2018 my financial blog, Diversify.com, and the Earn and Invest podcast. I spend most of my time on Earn and Invest. And so right. you can find that all at jordangrummet.com. Excellent. All those links will be in the show notes, everybody. G. thank you for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.